You are listening to our Southside Baptist Church podcast. For more audio content, please refer to our website. This is baptistchurch.com. Thank you, praise team. A moment ago when we were praying with the sound and communication with the praise team, John Williams let me know that I was in YouTube jail. They had uh, removed the sermon on vaccines and on some of the questions that I'd raised. And I thought to myself, as my grandson Silas has discovered a new word that he uses with his brothers, he calls them imbeciles. And Jeffrey said, I don't know where you got that word from, but um, I wanted to say to YouTube, I'm probably a lot smarter than many of you are, and uh, I don't get up in this pulpit and say something that I've not done extensive research in the process. 7,000 more have died in the United Kingdom in the first three weeks of June, uh, in the first three weeks of the new year. 7,000, over 7,000, 20 to 44 years of age, above the average. Dr. John Campbell, who trains nurse practitioners, said there is something tragically wrong, and the government of the United Kingdom is doing nothing about it. And he was angry, and I'm angry too. Social media is controlled by people who have more money than they, than they do sense. But uh, we will not be intimidated. And uh, there may come a day people may have to drag their behinds back into churches because the reality is they may not be able to live stream anymore because if they can do that, it's a matter of time. A preacher preaching this morning on hell, that won't be conducive to the uh, social agenda and they'll remove me. Uh, We're living in those times. But I titled the message today, A Hellless Gospel equals a hellish church, a hell-less gospel, H-E-L-L-L-E-S-S, hell-less gospel, a gospel that's void of the subject of hell will equal a hellish church or a hellish church member. And I think that's important. Now, in James chapter 1, beginning verse 12, we're just going to look at verse 12, and we're going to be skipping around today because I'm talking today about the alternative to what James 1.12 says. In James 1.12, remember we've talked about suffering, we've talked about trials, we've talked about seeking God's wisdom when we go through those times. But in verse 12, he said, Blessed is the man. Happy is the man or woman who perseveres under trial. Because when he has stood the test, he will receive the crown of life that God has promised to those who love him. So we see here, there is a reward. The reward is heaven. What we sung about a moment ago. But there's also another side to this story. I want you to take a left. Look at Matthew chapter 10, verse 28. Matthew chapter 10, verse 28. Because the same Lord Jesus Christ that promises you and I, if we persevere, through the love that we have for Christ, if we persevere, we'll receive the crown of righteousness, the crown of life. In Matthew chapter 10, verse 28, Jesus said these words. He said, Do not be afraid of those who kill the body, but cannot kill the soul. Rather, be afraid of the one who can destroy 
both soul and body in hell. Let me pray again. Lord, we love you. We give you glory. Lord, I pray for the people at YouTube, Facebook, Instagram, Twitter, uh, all of them, Lord. And may they understand that there have been governments, there have been regimes, there have been movements around the world throughout the 2,000-year history of the church trying to move the, remove the Word of God, trying to remove the influence and the impact of the church. God, may they learn a lesson that you cannot steal the voice of God. And Lord, we love you. And we pray this in the name of Jesus. Amen. Well, amen. You can be seated. I want to read a story to you. I've got a couple of stories, but I thought this one, it's always fascinated me. It was a new story. It said that a family woke up to find their house was on fire. And like many of our homes today, this home had security bars over the windows and over the doors. So the parents, the mom and dad, got up, began to get the children, corralled them out of the home. And as they stood in front of the house, and the house was now more and more on fire, more and more engulfed in flames, the mother, the mother began to cry. She began to weep as she watched her home, but more so as she wept over a family heirloom, a dining cabinet that had been in her family for generations. As she wept, she didn't realize it, but her teenage son had slipped away and had somehow got back into the house. And the next thing they knew, their teenage son was trying to push this dining room cabinet out the front door. And while trying to do that, he got it stuck. He couldn't get it through the doorway. In that moment, the teenage son began to cry out to his mom and his dad. His mother now was screaming frantically. The dad ran to the house. He got to a, a window. It had bars on it. The news said perhaps it was the adrenaline. They don't know what it was, but in that moment, that dad had superhuman strength, and he ripped those bars from that window and went in and saved his son. A pastor was listening to that story, watching it on the news, and so he thought to himself, he thought, you know, that would be a great story. What better illustration of what Jesus Christ has done for you and I in salvation? So the following Sunday, he stood up, and at the close of his message, his sermon, he told that story. As he finished it, the congregation was unmoved. Nobody seemed to respond. He felt dejected, and as he was riding home, he asked his wife as they made their way to the house, he said, what went wrong? He said, that illustration illustrates so well salvation and what Christ has done. And she looked at her husband, and she said, you forgot to tell them the house was on fire. You see, the fact of the family being up at night, the fact of parents getting the kids out of the home, the fact of the teenage son going back in to get a dining room cabinet that had been in, a, in the family for generations, now stuck in the doorway, the fact of a teenage son trapped in the house, the fact of a father ripping bars from the windows made no sense if the house was not on fire. And I think a lot of times when we come to the gospel, the problem is we're trying to tell people the good news of Jesus Christ 
but we forget to remind them that the house is on fire. This, this sermon came really with a conversation that you and I had. We were in our LTG, he and um, WH and I, and, and I reminded Willie, I said, Willie, I said, if somebody wishes to come to this church and they don't have a ride, I said, we, we need to go. We've had people from the Salvation Army there. Some of them have wanted to come here after they were here for our Christmas Day meal. And I said, Willie, that's the highest priority. I said, the highest priority is bringing people to hear the good news of Jesus Christ. I said, that's it. I said, it's not to run around and deliver sack lunches to the homeless. It's not to go pick up or just dilly-dally around. I said, that van is for evangelism. And that's what this church is for. But I thought as I, we talked, Willie, I thought afterwards, I thought it's sad that we have come to the point that we have to remind ourselves what the real task is of the church. Christ's primary subject, his number one subject, was hell. Think about that. The Bible said God was in flesh. God was in Christ reconciling the world to himself. Think about that. When God invaded his creation, when he steps into his creation, I want you to listen closely. He talked more about hell than any other subject. He talked more about hell than all combined. So in other words, to the to God who puts himself in the flesh of man, undoubtedly it was important to him that we be warned, that we understand what's at stake. William Booth said this, the founder of the Salvation Army. William Booth said this. He said to the graduates, he said, if I could take you and dangle you over hell for five minutes, he said you would go out and turn the world upside down. Jack Howells, who built the largest Sunday school, was asked one time who personally led over 200 men and women to Christ every year, built the largest Sunday school, had a fleet of buses going out. He was asked one time why he worked so feverishly to reach people for Christ. He said, when I was a young man, I came home, I was working second shift, got home about midnight, sitting in the kitchen eating. Me and my sister were living together. When all of a sudden she woke up, she was screaming. I ran upstairs, looked at her, and began to realize that she was dreaming. I woke her up. She wouldn't stop crying. I kept trying to calm her down. She wouldn't calm down. She said, Jack, I had a horrible dream. She said, I dreamed I went to hell. And Jack, and then she broke down and wept again. Jack said, it's all right, it's over. The dream's over, it was just a dream. And Jack Howell said, she took my shoulders, took my face in her hands, and she looked at me and said, Jack, you don't understand, I saw Daddy in hell. It turned Jack Howell's around. He said he was never the same. <clears throat> Many of you don't know this, but Dr. Gene Henderson, who pastored First Baptist Church of Brandon, former president of the Mississippi Baptist Convention, his son Chip pastors Pine Lake, one of the top, probably top 100 churches in the Southern Baptist Convention today and in the country. Gene Henderson dreamed that he went to hell. And when Gene shares this story about Going to hell, he weeps and he cries. 
In fact, at one point, Gene, at First Baptist Brandon, they were running four services. They started a Saturday night service. And for my family, you remember this, he had what they called the power team. The power team was a group of strong men who came and told people about Christ while ripping phone books and busting ice. Gene was driven to see people saved. Why? Because he had a dream. And in that dream, he dreamed that he went to hell. Jordan Peterson. Jordan Peterson is a clinical behavioral psychologist. He's uh, from Canada. He's an author. He's a commentator. He's a conservative. Now, when I say conservative, that means he's a classic British liberal. He's uh, a traditionalist. He's a, a student of, of Carl Jung. He's a brilliant, brilliant mind. But I stumbled on something here recently where it was talking about Jordan Peterson and his gradual spiritual awakening and how this man at 60 years of age is beginning to spiritually wake up to Christ. In this interview, he shared a lot of his battle, his struggle, as he's going through this journey, his understanding of the church, his understanding of Christ. But when he came to hell, he began to weep. And basically he said, if hell is real, then how could we possibly not share the good news of the gospel and warn people? You know, I wrote this down as after listening to Jordan Peterson. I said, I am ashamed of my growing indifference to the lost. The magnitude of the suffering, the death of Calvary, must, if nothing else, awaken us to the eternal outcome of hell. The high cost of rejecting Christ, living in the Lordship of Jesus Christ. People who are not on the church rolls, but have not only been baptized, they've been baptized into the body of Christ and living under the Lordship of Jesus Christ. And there is a difference. My question, I wrote it down, why would Jesus robe himself? Why would God robe himself in the flesh of man, suffer as he did, if not to remove us from something so horrible that the human language can't even begin to describe it in the Scripture? Hell is a real place. Let me say it again, hell is a real place. A lot of times people say, you know, it seems out of character. I thought you said God is love. God is love. And God loves you enough to give you a free will and to give you the op opportunity. You see, love can only be love. C.S. Lewis talks about this in Mere Christianity. It's a strong word against Calvinism. C.S. Lewis made this statement that love implies freedom to love back. Lauren sent me a, something about hell after we had talked about it Wednesday night. And basically, if I remember, it also said this in that little short statement that you posted on Facebook. It said, hell is where God is not. In other words, man, God gives man what he wants. He doesn't want God. God says, okay, I'll give you that. That's hell. But people say, well, that's out of character for God. It's not like God. God is love. Well, let me, let me illustrate in, in 
bear with me. My kids may get tired of this story, but I tell it today inspired, I believe, to tell it because of the Holy Spirit. Years ago, my younger brother, you know my brother, he's special needs. He's 18 months younger than I am. He was in a junior college. One Friday, I came home from Mississippi State. I was working in an ambulance service, but I'd come home. And when I got home, my dad was angry. I said, what's wrong? What's going on? My brother was crying. My special need brother was crying. My dad said, well, son, from what I understand, five guys locked him in a dorm room and begin to drop their drawers and basically begin to try to get him to do something that you know is so horrible that I can't say anymore. I was so angry. I went out that night. I can still see me doing it. I went out that night and I cut the axe handle off my dad's axe. And that Sunday afternoon, I went to that college and I sat there with my brother next to me in the passenger side of that little car that I was driving. And I said, Mike, point him out. There was one in particular, one young man, that was the culprit, the main one. The others, they kind of chickened out. But he pointed him out, and I'll never forget. I went up to this, I said, Mike, you stay here in the car. Went into that dorm room. I was familiar with that junior college. Walked in there, his, he walked into his door, and I walked in right behind him. And I turned, and I locked the door. He looked at me, and like, what are you doing in my dorm room? Get out of here. He had a foul mouth, arrogant attitude. He was a smart aleck. I looked at him, and I said, do you know a boy by the name of Mike Parker? He said, yeah, blankety-blank, GD this. What do you think about it? What about it? I said, did you do? He said, yeah, and he smarted off again. I was about two, I was 200 pounds, did a little boxing, worked out a lot. My first hit called his eye and busted his eye wide open. By the time he stood up, I'd hit him a second time and put him in the ER of the hospital. And you may say, Brother Jeff, you're a good man. You're a, you're a kind man. You, you would never do that. How could something make you do that? That's what the dean said. Uh, the police department was called. They were coming to arrest me at the dorm. The dean of students came over. And he walked in, and Sheila's whispering his name right now. He was a Golden Glove boxer, Golden Glove champion. He looked at me because my brother-in-law, my ex-brother-in-law, had called him and warned him that my brother-in-law is coming over there and he's angry and he's got an axe handle. And I don't know what he'll do. So here's the police to arrest me, getting ready to handcuff me, carry me to jail. In that moment, the dean of students stops him and looks at me and says, Jeff, what did you hit him with? This guy's eyes busted open. His mouth is busted open. He, his blood is just pumping out of him. I said, I hit him with my fist. He said, where's the axe handle? I said, it's in the car. He turned and looked at the police, and he said, you're out of your juris jurisdiction. You can leave now. I'll take care of this. He carried me back to his office. It's on a Sunday afternoon. He looked at me and he said, Jeff, I know you to be a Christian. 
You're a good young man. I've never, ever seen you behave like this. What made you react the way you did? And I begin to tell him what they had done to my brother, more particularly what this one young man had tried to do to my brother. And this dean of students became raging angry. And he understood. Sometimes I think we have a problem with the character of God when it comes to hell because we don't understand what God's upset about. And that's the problem, isn't it? Hell is God's reaction to evil. It's God's reaction to this city. It's God's reaction to political corruption. It's God's reaction to gang violence. It's God's reaction to crime. It's God's reaction to CJ, who was shot four times in the back as Willie's uh, nephew as he was fleeing a home. The reality is, is God's reaction to evil is hell. But it's also Jesus. Now, I want want you to listen to the severity of hell. I want you from James there, take a left, or if you're in Matthew, take a right. And I want you to look at Hebrews chapter 10, verse 26. In Hebrews chapter 10, verse 26. And my friend, this is some of the most frightening passages in all the Bible. But pick up at verse 24. Let's get a running start. In Hebrews chapter 10, beginning at verse 24, And let us consider how we may spur one another on toward love and good deeds. Let us not give up meeting together, as some are in the habit of doing, but let us encourage one another, and all the more as we see the day approaching. Now verse 26, are you there? Say amen. If we deliberately keep on sinning after we have received the knowledge of the truth, no sacrifice for sins is left but only a fearful expectation of judgment, of raging fire that will consume the enemies of God. Anyone who rejected the law of Moses died without mercy on the testimony of two or three witnesses. How much more severely do you think a man deserves to be punished who has trampled the Son of God under his feet, who has treated as an unholy thing the blood of the covenant that sanctified him and who has insulted the Spirit of grace? For we know him who said it is mine to avenge. I will repay and again the Lord will judge his people. It is a dreadful thing to fall into the hands of the living God. Wow. I wrote this down. One writer said the great danger is that somehow you and I see the creator, sovereign God of the universe as this docile, jovial, Santa Claus-like figure who smiles at our sins and bends the rules like a parent wanting to spoil spoil a a child to the detriment of their soul. Uh, God is not a grandfather. God is not a doting Santa Claus type figure. God is an individual that loves you too much to allow you and I to live in sin. And when he put the Holy Spirit in your heart and in your life after you repented of your sin, he has begun the work of conforming you and I into the image of Christ. Parent, that's what your responsibility to do is to train up your children in the way they should go. And when they're old, when they get the bearded chin, when they hit the puberty years, teenage years, you won't lose them. So this is what it means. Listen to what uh, one writer said about 
Hebrews 10.26. He said our sin and the acceptance or the accommodating of it may be the clearest indication of an unconverted life. The indifference to our own sin. No repentance. You know what Jordan Peterson said? He said, before you tear down this country, clean up your own life. When I got off the exit here, it's as if somebody had taken all their household garbage and just threw it all out there. Sheila said, why would people do that? Because they hate this country and they hate what it stands for. And my thought is, pack some folks up, put them in the third world, and give them a taste of what it's like to live in a Marxist, uh, communist country. One writer said, our sin, the acceptance, accommodating of it, is the clearest indication of an unconverted life. The indifference to our sin, no repentance, means the absence of true salvation. Yes, like the Corinthians, we may lapse into carnality, but we cannot stay there. Can't stay there. Can't live this way. I can't talk like this. I can't listen to this. I can't watch this. I can't fellowship with this. I can't befriend this. I can't do this for very long because the Holy Spirit inside of me is driving me crazy. I'm not fearing hell as an eternal destiny for me. I'm struggling with the hell going on in my own heart for the Lordship of Jesus Christ. You may say, why did you get so angry at that young man to put him in the hospital? It wasn't just what he did. It was the arrogant. He came after me. He cursed me. He came after me and he was a fool. Because back then I was 200 pounds. I was the second fastest man in a battalion, an army battalion. I did 600 sit-ups with weights behind my head. I was the only one in the battalion that could put 58 to 59 push-ups within one minute. I, was, I set records at the Missionary Learning Center when it came to push-ups and sit-ups. When he looked at me and cursed me and made fun of my brother in that moment, he unleashed something that he had no idea. You see, you and I need to understand the severity of my reaction was his unrepentance, his lack of remorse. It was as if he didn't care. He didn't care what had happened to my special need brother. He didn't love him. He didn't care about him. He was there to abuse him. But I thought to myself as I thought back over that, what about God's Son? Jesus Christ, if you remember, they spit on him. They ripped his beard. They tore his flesh from him. They took the cat of nine tails and whipped him almost to the point of death. They took him to the brink of death. In that moment, he's being spit on, ridiculed, mocked, made fun of. A cross is on him. My wife right now is crying. Right now, even as I'm talking about this. He took the cross, put it on his shoulders, and carried it up to Calvary. They mocked, ridiculed, made fun of him, spit at him. He wasn't sitting up here on a high cross. He was right there. He was close enough that people could come up and spit in his face. 
my thought was I got mad about my brother and how he was treated. Imagine how God is angry over how his son is treated. You know what God was doing in the very throne room of God? Do you know that the Bible said, you know what Jesus said? He said 72,000 angels stand ready they are on high alert, ready to come to my defense should I give this signal. Do you know what Bob Smith, that blind pastor, I used to love this. When Bob would come to the cross, nobody could preach on the blood of Jesus like Bob Smith. Bob Smith said at 3 o'clock in the afternoon, and you can go back and read it in the Gospels, it said that the sky turned black, dark. It turned dark. It turned dark. And Bob said, I tell you why. Because God the Father put his hand over his naked son, abused and beaten up, and he said, you won't look at my son like that. Some of you sit at home. You're not in church. Your kids are laying in there probably watching TV. You long since have given up the battle, given up the fight. Some of you are hooked on drugs, alcohol, pornography. You live your life for a life. You live your life for a like on Facebook. And the reality is you're a heartbeat away from eternity in hell. The message says that Eugene Peterson said it this way of that passage in Hebrews. He said, if we give up and turn our backs on all we've learned, all we've been given, all the truth we now know, we repudiate Christ's sacrifice, we're left on our own to face the judgment. And a mighty fierce judgment it will be. The penalty for breaking the law of Moses is physical death. What do you think will happen if you and I turn on God's Son, spit on the fact, sacrifice that made you whole, insult the most gracious Holy Spirit? And he went, ended that passage in that paraphrase by saying, this is no light matter. What is the apostasy? What is the Bible talking about? This is a person who comes up to the truth. They understand. They know who Jesus is. They know what he's done. They know what that cross stands for. They've read that Bible. They've come to the edge of the truth. And they said, it's not for me. I don't want it. Some of them have never come under the lordship of Jesus Christ. They're still held in bondage to a sin. And they finally throw in the towel, give up. And they give in to that addiction. And before long, God says there's no other hope. Paul said in 1 Timothy 4.1, he said in the last days, there'll be a great falling away. Matthew 24.10, Jesus talked about the apostasy. 2 Thessalonians 2, 1-3, it talks about a rebellion, the apostasy. Apostasia in the Greek. Falling away, rolling away, a defection. Church members who go AWOL. Take a, take a right from Hebrews and look at 1 John, because I think John is dealing with this. Hold your finger on Hebrews 10, because I want to bring you back to that. But in 1 John chapter 2, watch what John says here. In 1 John chapter 2, verses 18 and 19, listen to what John said. He said, Dear children, this is the last hour, and as you have heard that the Antichrist is coming, even now many Antichrists have come. This is how we know it is the last hour. Now watch this. This is how we'll know. 
they went out from us, but they did not really belong to us. For if they had belonged to us, they would have remained with us, but their going showed that none of them belonged to us. They went AWOL. Now look back at, look back at Hebrews chapter 10. Watch this. You remember verse 24? Watch what he said here. Before he comes to this painful passage in 26, watch what he says here. He says in verse 24, Let us not give up meeting together as some are in the habit of doing. Let us encourage one another and all the more as you see the day approaching if we deliberately keep on sinning. Well, what sin is he talking about? He's talking about those that come up to the edge. They understand Christ. They understand what God's done for them. They understand Calvary. They understand regeneration, justification, propitiation. They understand all the theology. They come up to the edge. They come to church for a while, and then after a while, they fall by the wayside. They go AWOL. Why? Because they love the things of the world too much. And God says to them, he said, there's, no, there's nothing else. 1 John 2 uses a strong word here, ex ercomai. They go out from us. They turn away from us. They don't want it. You ever had somebody look at you and tell you that? If you haven't, you ought to be ashamed of yourself. I'll never forget, I was in the home of a man. This man was a Ph.D., brilliant man, one of the smartest men in the state of Mississippi, held all kinds of positions in the academic world, in the educational world. And I went to his home. He was a hard, bitter old man. Sat down as a young pastor, shared Christ with him, and he sat there, and, hey, listen, I carried Bob Smith back to him, and I thought Bob was going to get in a fist fight with him. He was so angry. I said, Bob, calm, calm down. we got to get out of here. I said, I'll come back. I came back and talked to that man, talked about the Bible. He, I'll never forget at one point, he was, he was filled with all his academia. He said, boy, he said, I know that Bible better than you do. Well, I was a tough little, pretty tough dude back then too. I said, sir, no, you don't. Because you don't know Jesus, so you don't even know the basic character in the story. And finally, I'd done all I could, and I got up, and I walked out of that house. I was so angry. I walked out of the house. I'll never forget it. He followed me, a big old beautiful home. He followed me out there, and he said, well, he said, you're the first preacher that's come to visit me that didn't pray when he got ready to leave. And I turned around and looked at him, and I said, you're right. And I dropped down on my knees, and I prayed that God would do whatever he had to do to change his heart. That man finally died and went into eternity. He raised a son just like him. One day, that son just like him, his wife called me, said, Brother Jeff, get down here. It was, ten, it was late. It was on a Friday night. Said, Brother Jeff, get down here. My husband's trying to kill me. That man I talked about a moment ago, his son, married, had a, had a boy. They had one son. I got there, I walked out there, and she was screaming, laying out in the front yard. He had a pipe threader, piece of pipe, a pipe threader, and he was getting ready to hit her. I walked up, and I began to speak to him. His name was Charles. I said, Charles, Charles. He turned, and he had that pipe threader aimed at me. My friend, a preacher friend of mine, went running. He went running back to the car. Sheila still laughs about it. He said it was the bravest thing he ever saw a man do. 
I looked at him, and this man was bigger than I am. He's holding that pipe threader. He's getting ready to take my head off when all of a sudden I said, Charles, look at me. I said, it's Brother Jeff. It's the preacher. He dropped that pipe threader, wrapped his arms around me, and collapsed. You may not worry about hell, but you better worry about the ones that are going to come after you. Gary Boland made it clear. He said those in hell are trying to get somebody to go back and warn their families. Apostasy, to walk away. Let me give you another one. Take a left and go over to, and we'll, we'll quit in a minute, but take a left and go over to Luke chapter 13. Luke chapter 13. In Luke chapter 13, beginning at verse 22. Then Jesus went through the towns and villages teaching as he made his way to Jerusalem. Some asked him, Lord, are only a few people going to be saved? That's a silly question. You know, we get into Calvinism, Arminian. We get into trying to figure out who God saved and who he hasn't saved. My friend, God says it's none of your business. You just be faithful to share the word. But Jesus said, make every effort to enter through the narrow door, because many, I tell you, will try to enter and will not be able to. Once the owner of the house gets up and closes the door, you will stand outside knocking and pleading, Sir, open the door for us, but he will answer, I don't know you or where you come from. Then you will say, We ate and drank with you. You taught in our streets. But he will reply, I don't know you or where you come from. Away from me, all you evildoers. There will be weeping and gnashing of teeth when you see Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, and all the prophets in the kingdom of God, but you yourself are thrown out. People will come from the east and the west and the north and the south. They'll take their place at the feast of the kingdom of God. Indeed, there are those who are last who will be first and first who will be last. You know what Jesus said here in the Greek? When he says, make every effort, he says, agonisamai, ice erkomai. Agonisamai. Does that sound familiar? That's where we get our word agony. He said, agonize. Agonisamai, ice erkomai. Agonize to get in the narrow door. Because once, and this is where the Calvinists get it wrong, because once the owner of the house has closed the door, it's too late. God gives you a free will. He gives you an opportunity to come to Christ. He says, Agonisamai, Ice Erkamai. But as we saw in 1 John chapter 2, Ex Erkamai. They, 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 they turn away. They turn away. You know, we think, well, wow, how could anybody turn it away? You know, Satan was in heaven. He turned away from the love of God. Judas spent three and a half years with Jesus, he betrayed him and sold him for 20 pieces of silver. Demas forsook Paul. I don't believe in AWOL Christians. I don't believe in churchless Christians. Let me tell you this much, and everybody knows this about me. I love my family. Man. I delight. 
outside of my relationship with Jesus Christ is my relationship with this woman who we will have been married 45 years in March, March 19th. I've known her nearly going on 50 years. I've known her a long time. There's nothing that I enjoy more. The second thing that I enjoy is my kids, my kids' families, my grandkids. There's nothing I enjoy more than to be with my kids, my son-in-laws and daughter-in-laws and my grandkids. I love my family. But I'm going to tell you this much. Everybody listen. I love my church family. Man, I, I, I come Wednesday nights because I've got to get, get filled. I've got, I've got to be in the company of other believers. And John said they, they leave us. They're AWOL. Why? Because it, it never took root. You see, that's what Jesus said about the soil. Do you remember? He said that man broadcasting the soil, he said that's the gospel. He said, but some of that seed fell on hard, stony ground. And what happened? Birds came and ate it. He said, that's Satan. He said, some of it fell in that shallow soil that covers those rocks. And the Bible said that they received it with joy. A lot of emotion. They came for a while, but then they fell by the wayside. Why? Because the Bible says when the heat began to bear down on them, when trials begin to come into their life they abandon the bible said he threw the seed on that thorny soil and it sprung up and it grew with the thorns but it never produced fruit he said that's those who get caught up in materialism the things of the world but then he said then some of it fell on good soil jesus said not everyone who says unto me lord lord shall enter the kingdom of heaven but he who does the will of the the father he said depart from me you worker of iniquity the word iniquity is a lawlessness You may look at me and you may say, Brother Jeff, would Sheila forgive you of anything? I believe she would. Would you take advantage of that kind of love? No, I would not. You may say, your dad's 93 years old. He'll be watching this in a little while. You may say, are you afraid your dad at 93 might take the belt off and discipline you, whip you? I'm not worried about my dad disciplining me. I'm worried about me disappointing him. I'm not worried about the discipline of Jesus Christ. I'm worried first and foremost the agonizing of conviction when I willfully disobey Him. Right? He loves you and I too much. But hell is in the balance. Let me read a story to you real quick. It's a story about the Titanic. The largest vessel that was ever afloat at that time. Just after 10 o'clock on the night of April 14, 1912, the Titanic crashed into an iceberg in in the mid-Atlantic. Four hours later, ended its maiden voyage on the ocean floor. Remember, the headline was, this was a ship that God could not sink. Books and movies have told the story of those frightening four hours. The heroism of the captain, the officers, the crew, the bandmaster who played nearer my God to thee while getting into his life jacket. But then there's this story. Listen to this story. Then comes the story less moving but not less interesting. A certain woman who had been allotted a place in one of the lifeboats asked if she might return to her state's room. And she was given permission to leave the life 
to leave the lifeboat and to go back to her room. She hurried along the corridors as they were tilting at a dangerous angle. Money, costly gems had littered the floor. Some people were running, snatching up the jewelry as it spilt. But in her state room, she saw the treasure that she was going for. She saw and took no heed, snatching at three oranges, which she knew to be there. She took her place on the boat. The writer went on to make this statement. He said, that incident is instructive. The writer continues, an hour before it hit the a Titanic hit the iceberg, it would have seemed incredible to that woman that she could prefer a crate of oranges to one small diamond. But death boarded the Titanic. And with one blast from death's nostrils, the awful breath of life leaving, all values were transformed. Precious things became worthless. Worthless things became precious. Oranges were worth more than diamonds. Let me tell you, you can hear me. What's at stake? Young people, what's at stake is your soul. Hey, it doesn't matter to me whether you believe me or not. I'm just the errand boy. I'm just the messenger. That's all I am. You can argue with him, but he loves you too much, and he's giving you the freedom to choose this day whom you'll serve. You can, even, you can either live your life for Satan, the world system, the flesh, the devil, and you can end up like Lisa Marie. How sad, Lisa Marie Presley. Her dad left her over a $100 million estate. Her dad left her with everything that materialistically she could possibly ever need. But her dad went to, her dad died on a drug overdose in a bathroom at 42 years of age. Why? Because he failed to give her the most important thing of all, and that was Jesus Christ. And young people, you may think, well, I'm different. Well, tell that to Michael Jackson. Tell that to Whitney Houston. Tell that to Elvis Presley. Tell that to Lisa Marie. Tell it to many an NFL, NBA, all the sports heroes that you and I worship. Look how many of their lives have flopped and failed because they invested everything in the world and it did not satisfy the deepest, dark parts of their soul. Paul says in 2 Corinthians, he says in 2 Corinthians 5.10, he says we must all stand before the judgment of God. And it'll be heaven or hell. In fact, I looked this up. If you live to be about 80 years of age, your heart will beat 3.4 billion times. Think about it. 3.4 billion times. We watched a few weeks ago as an NFL ball player on a routine tackle, he went into cardiac arrest, and this is what happened. And if you've ever been there, I told Ledge, I said, until you're doing CPR with family screaming 
and begging you to bring them back, been there. When you're breathing it back in the 70s, when I did it one time for an hour and 45 minutes on a friend of mine's dad, when I was breathing into his lungs and compressing his chest for an hour and 45 minutes, even in the ER as the doctor tried to save his life. The reality is, is that death comes knocking on every door. And you and I have either made a, we hey, listen, we have either turned our life over to Jesus Christ and we're living for the Lord. We're living under the Lordship. Listen, it's not to say that you and I don't live sometimes in carnality. Sometimes sin gets creeps back into our life. Sometimes we get pulled into old addictions, old habits, things we start doing that begin to grieve our heart. They grieve the Holy Spirit. We're quenching the Holy Spirit, but we can't stay there. We just can't stay there. We can't continue to sin willfully. You just can't do it. And if you can, chances are you've never truly been saved. And for all those people that never go to church, that sit at home, I wouldn't give you a dime for a churchless salvation. As John said, they went out from among us because they were not of us. Had they been with us, they would have stayed with us. But because they were not with us, they went out. Ex ericomai, agonisomai, ice ericomai, strive to enter. Because there comes a day when the owner closes the door and it's too late. Had a friend of mine in jump school, a man that was killed. In jump school, there is the hook to the line, there's a moment you're jumping out of an airplane. Let me tell you, and Ledge and Alicia, and some of these have, have jumped out of an airplane. I guarantee one thing, you didn't mind them checking your chute, did you? No. He's smiling and going, not at all. Let me tell you, I'm asking you to check your chute today. Do you know that you're saved? And do you look like it? Do you know Christ? Let's stand. Our Heavenly Father, we just come to You in the name of Jesus. And Lord, we love You and we thank You and praise You for who You are. And Lord, we thank You that God was in Christ reconciling the world to Himself. We thank You that the Bible says where Jesus said, He that has seen Me has seen the Father. I and the Father are one. Lord, may it begin to grip our soul that out of all the subjects that you could speak of, the love of God, heaven, all the theological terminology, all the things that you could speak of, you spoke more about hell than any other subject. Why? Because you love us. And you've made every, every provision for us to be saved. The Bible says you're not willing that any should perish, but that all should come to repentance. You want every man, woman, boy and girl to be saved, but their will, that will, that Proverbs 29, 1, where it says, He that hardens his heart and stiffens his neck shall suddenly be cut off, and that without remedy. Some moms and dads need to be saved. Some grandmas and grandpas need to be saved. 
Some of us need to go home and we need to realize the people that are living under our roof are lost and we need to speak to them about the gospel. And we need to quit cowering down, being intimidated. We need to do it unapologetically. Give us courage, Lord. Give us strength to take the good news of the gospel, but also give us the courage and the strength to look at people and to say, but if you reject this, there is nothing left. You will be held accountable before God and you'll be separated from God and everything that's good for all of eternity. I remember we're late one night stopping in a station. There were a group of African-American young men standing out there. Music just sound absolutely horrible. The song lyrics were just so offensive that I told Sheila, roll the window up. I walked over and looked at those young men and I began to hand them tracks. One young man slapped it out of my hand, slapped my hand and tossed the track to the ground. I looked at him and I said, I have a feeling, young man, that you've got an old grandmother that's in heaven now that is grieving over your soul and you need to be saved. That young man looked like cold water had been splashed in his face. He didn't know what to do because in that moment, that old grandmother came to his mind. And he was ashamed. My dad, when he was in the Navy, said every bar I walked into, I'd see my mama. It was like I'd see my mama there, and it would break my heart because I would think, boy, if my mama saw me, how disappointed she would be. Well, Lord, may we understand there's somebody watching us. It is the Lord Jesus Christ. May we be busy about the kingdom's work, telling people about Christ. May we realize that... Hell is a real place, just like heaven. And our reservations are either being made in one place or the other. And only through repentance and faith and trust in Jesus Christ that's evidenced by a life that is lived out under the Lordship of Christ, that's truly a turnaround life. Lord, may we begin to realize, God, that we need to be busy about that message. Lord, we love you. And we pray this in the name of Jesus. Amen. Amen. You come. May never be a moment like this moment. You come. If you need somebody to pray with you, you come right now. If you need to come to this altar and spend a moment in prayer over a family member, over some, some of you, some of you need to leave this place and you need to call your parents your siblings, your nieces, your nephews, your friends. You need to, hey, listen, some of you need to find those people that you know are lost, that are living in your own homes, and you need to talk to them about salvation. There may never be a chance like right now. Are we living in the last days? I wouldn't doubt it. I wouldn't doubt it. Something's tragically wrong in the world. First three weeks of January... Deaths between 20 and 44 years of age in the United Kingdom were up 7,000. 7,000 deaths. Dr. John Campbell saying the government owes us an explanation. We don't know what we're living in and we don't know what we face. A pandemic? A war? We don't know. But I can tell you this much. 
My faith and my trust is in a sovereign God. Jesus is living in my heart. And he just told me, son, you just continue to be my messenger until I call you home. For all of us, you come. You come right now. May never be a moment like this moment. You come.